Hi, this is Amanda. And this is Lindsay. We're True Creeps. Where the stories are true. And the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore. To the possibly plausible paranormal. To horrifying history. To tense and terrible true crime. And everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone. Today, we have a very interesting case to tell you about. Yeah. And it's the case that's been dubbed the Fall River Cult Murders. And of course, this is a standalone episode. But this one's interesting because it involves two other series that we've been working on the last couple months. One being the Bridgewater Triangle, but it also involves a lot of elements from Satanic Panic. And interestingly, it's our third episode in both of those series. Yeah, how funny. We didn't mean for that to happen, but it... It works. Here we are. (laughs) And Amanda, how many pages is this outline today? So people know what they're getting into. (laughs) So this is a very long case that involves a lot of people, similar to like when we describe Lori Vallow to you and how many people are involved in the cast of characters for that case. This is pretty similar. And to answer Lindsay's question, this outline for today's episode is 48 pages long. It's a doozy, just like... As we record, we're like, okay, we're going to take breaks. We're going to, I have like hot tea at the ready so I can like soothe my voice. So I'm not like, <laughs> and then at the end of this, you know, but so we bring up the sheer volume of it because even with all of those pages, we have really crafted this episode to tell the story of this series of killings, but not with every single teeny tiny detail, because as we tell it to you, we're going to go back and forth through time. Amanda said there's a lot of people and there's also just a lot of facts, right? And we're weaving in satanic panic. We're talking about a lot. And so we want to preface that we're not going to have every single tiny detail of this case. We're going to talk about some things in broad strokes, some things we're going to talk about in detail. And we'll kind of go back and forth as we do those. But we've collected information that we think is vital to the story, that is vital to understand what exactly happened. Yeah. And honestly, like, why we get to this conclusion where you're like, huh, funny that people saw this in certain ways. Yeah. And I think as we researched this, we went on a journey ourselves going, oh, this person did it. Wait a minute. Maybe not. For me, very early on when I was reading, I read something about a person and I was like, it's them. Like my gut was just like, okay, (laughs) next. We're done here. And you might too when you hear about this person, right? Yeah. He stands out. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing. A lot of people stand out and then they don't stand out and then they stand out again. And it kind of goes back and forth because it's not as though we're talking about a series of people who were very clearly innocent, right? Like people had really intense thoughts about them and who they were because of a bunch of variables and they made assumptions based on that. And that sounds really familiar, right? Like that sounds like the West Memphis Three, right? Like They looked at him and went, "Mm, no, you're no good, right? And here, there's a little bit more at work, but there's still that satanic element that's in it. Yeah. So because it happens to fall a little bit into satanic panic, we want to quickly review what satanic panic was. So satanic panic was a moral panic that happened in the 80s and early 90s. It was fueled by stories and the media describing various ritualistic killings, sacrifices, kidnappings, and sexual abuse. Some say the country was almost primed for it to happen. Because eras like the Cold War, which included the U.S. getting even more religious. An example being the phrase, in God we trust. We have an entire episode on it. So if you want to review that, you can. It is my favorite episode that we've done thus far. Perhaps actually now it's second because we just did Mothman. 
<laughs> yeah, it's a very good episode. I think it's really interesting. So you don't have to listen to that one first, but I think it would give you a good idea of what was happening in the world during this. Yeah. So most of those stories turned out to be fake. However, there were convictions because of it. And another episode that we've already covered was the case of the West Memphis Three, which Lindsay already mentioned. And it's a good example about how the fear of Satanism caused three young men jail time for murders of little boys without forensic evidence. And so that was also really interesting because it's current nowadays. Like it's yes. they're going through some stuff in the court system. So we are covering that also in our True Crime Digest. One of the many sources that we used for this case is the Blumhouse docuseries titled Fall River. And it's a four-part, four-hour series where they have tons of interviews, tons of information, court docs, all kinds of stuff. It's actually very, very interesting. Yeah. So as a quick overview of what we'll be talking about today, the Fall River cult and the murders, what it is, is between 1979 and 1980, three young women... Doreen Leveth, Barbara Raposa, and Karen Marston were found brutally murdered. All three were bound, bludgeoned, and one was even mutilated. They all have similar characteristics within their murders, which should lead people to believe perhaps there was only one killer. However, those who ended up serving time may not be for the right reasons, and satanic panic may play a role in that. Yeah. So... We're going to keep saying it so that it's clear, but we're moving around in history. So do you know what we're going to start with? What are we going to start with? Kind of the middle. The middle. Okay. And it's kind of like how the trials end up, right? So you're going to hear these names more, but we're going to introduce them. Carol Fletcher agreed to testify against William Smith and Carl Drew. So she received immunity. Very bizarrely. Incredibly difficult to see if she actually pled to any charge. I scoured the internet and could only find more current things where she's talked again. And we'll talk about that later. But th we're talking 1980. So it's not as though you can go on to Massachusetts court's website and actually pull things up. But so Carl Fletcher agreed to testify against William Smith and Carl Drew. Robin pled guilty on a second degree murder charge in relation to the killing of Karen Marsden in exchange for a testimony against Carl and William. And we also call him Willie interchangeably. Now you're going to notice we're going to skip William because while they agreed to testify against William, his charges never went to trial because those charges were dropped. Carl Drew was found guilty of first-degree murder for the murder of Karen Marsden and was given a life sentence. So let's move to the post-conviction time. So we're going to talk about what we knew at the time of the investigation, as well as what we know now. So after the trial was over, a detective, Paul Carey, had recently retired. And so he worked nights and was involved with the case since Doreen's body was found, and she was the first victim that was found. He gave several milk crates full of case details and trial details to Chris Hayes. And Paul had been a friend of Chris's dad and Chris had become a private investigator and was in college at the time. And Paul said, so now that I'm retired, it's been my mission for years. I've known this guy has been innocent. I just couldn't prove it while I was still part of the department. Do you have chills already? Mm -hmm. Ugh. Paul would often go to jail to meet with Carl. Carl said that until the day he died, Paul believed he was innocent. That's sad. Yeah. Yeah. Which by the way, when we say he died, we mean Paul died within the past few years. That kind of reminds me of John Benet's case. Remember how the detective left his his stuff to his daughter to like keep going with this case? Oh, yes. Yes. I mean, like, I feel like that's the kind of thing you see in television shows, but you don't often hear about it in real true crime cases. So Paul had told Chris that he wanted to track down everyone from the trial and he wanted to get the truth for them. So what happens next is he starts to re 
interview people who had originally given statements or testified in the trial. And he was like, look, if they say the same thing again, okay, I'll believe them. But he was like, "Mm, I don't think they're going to. Right? Right. So as we discuss each person, because we're going to talk a lot about a lot of people's interviews with law enforcement and their testimony, we'll talk about what they said during the investigation and trial, and then what they told Paul and Chris. Yes. A little different. Yeah. So let's lay the groundwork for satanic panic during this case. Margot Chargliss, a former court reporter, said that they were always finding upside down crosses in the Freetown State Forest. Also, that there was always talk of satanic cult activity out there. So they're like, in the forest, there's a lot of weird stuff happening. Yeah. Everyone started talking about satanic cults and devil worship being a growing threat. Especially because prior to this, the Charles Manson case caught everyone's attention. So everyone's talking about it. It's on the news. Everyone's still reliving that. So when anyone spoke of Satanism, they're always thinking of that case. There were several headlines around the country about Satanism and devil worshiping being in certain areas of the U.S. So another person that I just want to touch on because I found him fascinating is Alan Alves. And he's a former detective sergeant in Satanic Crimes. And he said that he had been involved in investigating Satanic Crime for two decades in the Freetown State Forest. It's a long time. So his interviews were absolutely wild. I think it's interesting and important to bring some of the things that he was saying up because that's what people were hearing at that time. He at one point described what, you know, the Satanists were often doing in the forest and what he said, quote, what they do, they have a pentagram. Satan would come out of the center of it. We would find animals with absolutely no blood in them at all. They would drain the blood right out of them. Interesting. Interesting. Another quote, it would be opposite of the Catholic Church, and they would drink blood instead of wine and so forth, and usually with a high priestess of the cult. It'd be mixed with either his urine or his semen. Oh, God. Yep. And he's saying this with like a straight face, like he's informing people. So he also went off about how they know what they were doing was wrong, and they did things like molest kids. They became serial rapists and murderers. And... He also said, here comes a religion that says rape is okay, killing's okay, and all that stuff is okay. And what's interesting is if you do look at Satanism, we've talked about it several times, it doesn't say that. It does not say that. It says the opposite of that. Literally. (laughs) He also claims to have never seen a ritual, but he's only seen the aftermath of the rituals. And just to go a little bit more, he actually thinks that they sacrifice people. Like they, they go sacrifice humans on Halloween and May 1st. Of course they do. And later in the documentary, someone's like, you know, perhaps a lot of this was debunked. And, you know, it's like modern day. Yeah. A lot of this, you know, years ago was kind of debunked. And he's like, no, it was suppressed by the government because a lot of important people were involved in it, even Hmm. today. Hmm. And then what I found was interesting, because Lindsay brought this up in our Satanic Panic episode, is a documentary then shows things like QAnon. And they're like, maybe it is happening again. Yeah. Yeah, it felt very good for someone else to be like, you know what this sounds like. Right. So let's back up a little. How did Satanism get into this particular case? And the way it happened realistically is someone used it in their confession. And we're going to talk more about Robin. But in her confessions, she incorporated Satanism into it. And then when later asked, like, why did you do that? She said, quote, oh, because the nice people said so. So she was told to incorporate that because they knew that they'd get a conviction out of it because everyone was freaking out about it. 
Yeah. And just as a reminder, because I think this is an important element of this. Part of the interesting part of trying cases where there's a satanic panic element is that in a lot of places, you could say that the motive was satanic panic if there was elements of Satanism in it. And then you suddenly had to do a lot less work in the case because in order to prove like motive, intent and all of these other things, you could say there's proof of Satanism. So there's proof that Satanism was why they did this. So there's proof that they did this. So the idea that you get to just prove Satanism and then it proves the murder is absolute garbage. It is. And one thing I didn't mention is in the documentary, they had police training videos saying how to identify a satanic ritualistic killing. And they're like, when you're looking at the body, look behind the ear. If you see a cut here, it might have been used as part of a ritual. It was very bizarre. Yeah. So continuing on, one of the things we're going to talk a lot about today is sex work. And that's because there was so much sex work in that area. As a note, I think that if an adult wants to do sex work, they should be able to. And rather than criminalizing that work itself, we should focus on regulating the parts of it that are dangerous. And just as a general thing, people are people and we don't kill people. And it doesn't matter what their profession is. Yeah. And it doesn't matter whether or not you like their profession. They matter. We deserve, as humans, dignity and care and to be talked about with the same reverence. And I think that that's one of the things that makes me the most angry when I read this is that so often what I will read is like the phrasing of like three prostitutes did X, Y, Z. And it's like, what the literal fuck? Or their names aren't used at all. Yeah, their names are not used. They're just referred to as a prostitute. And I'm like, a person may be a sex worker, but that is not all they are. And if for them, if that's you and you're like, that is who I am and like, great, great for you. But this is strangers who are just using it as a way to degrade them. And it's very clear. And it's also so clear just kind of how fucked this area was to me. Oh, yeah. When you keep seeing police like talking to the media and saying things like they were dating about literal children and grown men. We're talking like girls in their early teens and men over 30. And at one point they even said, oh, we weren't focused on that. We were only focused on catching a murderer. When asked like, why didn't you investigate this a little bit more? You're saying you knew this was happening. And they're like, well, we weren't interested in that at the time. Literally get fucked. We only wanted the murderer. Yeah, like they they certainly didn't care. But so (laughs) there was an area in Fall River that was about a block and a half away from the police station that was considered a tough area. And it was because there was a higher crime rate. And in this area, on any given Friday or Saturday night, there might be 30 to 40 women in the area or girls who are under 18 offering sex work. And the number of sex workers was steadily increasing. So that's a bit odd when you consider how close it is to the police station. Yes. And that brings up a lot of questions and concerns for a lot of people about like, okay, sex work is illegal and it's a block and a half from the police station. That's a bit odd. Yes. So this brings up conspiracy theories. And one of the pimps that we will discuss, Carl Drew, said that the cops knew what was happening and they just didn't care. And they didn't. Yeah. Very clearly. Right. And so some people report that the cops also picked up some of the girls and women for sex work. So they weren't stopping criminal activity in this area because they were engaged in it. 
So the first victim that we're going to talk about today is Doreen Levesque. And we're going to start with some background information. She was 17 years old and she was originally from New Bedford. And at the time of her murder, she was experiencing issues with her family and she had ran away. And she was also experiencing homelessness. She was a sex worker, but she didn't work in New Bedford because she didn't want people who she had known to see her. She was a child still. It makes me sad. Yeah, she was... A child. And I feel like so often people, they're like, 18 is legal. And I'm like, ew, ew. You're still a child at 18. (laughs) Yeah. If yesterday you were a minor, today it's still gross. Anywho, so like just wild. But so just like the idea that people are acting as though these girls weren't kids still, like it's gross to me. It's It's heartbreaking. We'll talk about more details of what happened with them, but it's just that was like their day to day. And it's just it makes you really sad. Yes. And outraged that the cops did nothing. Yes. So on Saturday, October 13th of 1979, the nude body of an unidentified woman who was bound with white fishing line was found under the bleachers at Dimmon Vocational High School. And the injuries she had were pretty fucking terrible. She'd been bludgeoned with a rock and it appeared that she'd also been beaten in the face with a rock, like her face was smashed in. And even more terribly, she had been sexually assaulted with a baseball bat. And they knew that because the baseball bat was still present. So she also had a mark inside her ear that looked like it had been caused by a knife, an ice pick, or something that kind of had that pointy, stabby edge, which, as Amanda mentioned before, they're like, mark behind the ear. Yep. So the autopsy. It was performed the following day on October 14th in the basement of a local hospital. And this was just interesting to me that this could even happen. There were reports that the window in the basement was open, and it was for ventilation purposes. But during the autopsy, authorities remember a child peeking into one of the windows as they were performing the autopsy. So it's just really sad that these girls weren't given any dignity at all. And it's probably because, like Lindsay said, their line of work. Yeah. So it doesn't matter. You, you want to come watch the autopsy? Sure. Just made me really sad. So after her autopsy, law enforcement were able to make a composite drawing of the victim. And the drawing was circulated all around. And then one of Doreen's friends came forward and identified the body as Doreen's. So let's talk about the investigation for Doreen. The morning that her body was found, Detective Alan Silva was called to the crime scene at the high school. It was very early in the morning. Law enforcement gathered evidence at the scene. And one of the pieces of evidence was the rock. So Lindsay mentioned that big rock that she was bludgeoned with. They sent it to the FBI lab in Washington, but unfortunately, they were unable to pull prints from it. I wonder if they would be able to do that today with like that MVAC system. Yeah. So initially, law enforcement suspected that Doreen may have been murdered by one of her customers. So there were some interviews within the investigation done with people who knew Doreen and one being Janet Francis. And she said that Doreen had told her about a bad experience that she had the night before with one of the customers. Another interview was done with Willie Smith, and he said that he would let Doreen bring back customers to his apartment, but he didn't know what had happened to her. Interesting. Weird. And then Andy Maltese, and his real name is Andres but he went by Andy. People described him as a character because he wore Western clothes and a big Texas belt buckle. And that was despite the fact that they were in Massachusetts. So kind of like he stood out. Yeah. He routinely got the services of sex workers. He was interviewed several times and actually was an early suspect, but they deemed him not involved. Now, though, after all of this, it's pretty well known that he was a pedophile. He was an awful, awful human being. Yeah, he's a piece of garbage. 
Yeah. So in 1957, Maltese was arrested in connection with the sexual assault of junior high girls in the Freetown State Forest and was subsequently imprisoned, then released. Gross. Yeah. So this will matter in a few minutes, but pretty much everyone thought that Maltese was in jail for an additional charge until February 8th. And in the documentary, they actually called the Fall River District Court and confirmed that he was released on February 8th, whereas a lot of people thought he was still behind bars. Yeah. During their investigation, law enforcement also learned that Doreen had been warned and threatened to stop working in that area by Carl and Robin. And we're going to talk about who exactly they are in a moment. Some think that they wanted to control the sex workers and how much money they were making. So we're going to move on to talking about the last victim, Karen Marsden. And the reason for that is because the investigation is intertwined with the days leading up to Karen's disappearance. So we're going to do a little background first. Per Karen's friend, Elaine Gibbs, Karen was a good friend and Karen's mother had gone to jail, but her friend Elaine did not know really anything about Karen's father. Elaine had lived with Karen for a bit and Elaine helped Karen with her son, Joseph John Alves. Her son went by JJ, and he was just two when his mother died. And this is very sad, but he has also since died. And we'll talk more about Elaine's interviews in a moment. But Karen was a sex worker, and she worked for Carl Drew, who we mentioned earlier, was eventually convicted for her death. And he was a pimp, so she worked for him for about a year. She was also seen with Robin, and that's Robin Murphy, who eventually took a plea deal and agreed to testify against Carl. So Robin was also thought to be, people thought that she was a pimp as well. It's a little unclear. We'll talk about each of them in a lot more detail later, just so you have a little idea of who they are. But so a lot of people had seen Karen with Robin, and they thought that they were like, oh, that's her lover. Later, Robin would call Karen her girlfriend, and they did end up living together at some point, although... It's a little bit unclear who she was living with at the time of her death. She was kind of caught in the middle of their feud because the two of them did not like each other. And I really do wonder if that's part of the reason why it was hard for her to get justice and it was hard to kind of like cut through the noise of what really did happen. So we're going to talk about this more in a moment about exactly why law enforcement was like, oh, Karen knows something. But she very quickly was identified by law enforcement as the quote unquote weak link in Doreen's murder. And typically when she talked to them, law enforcement thought she had been intoxicated. And Detective Silva, who Amanda mentioned earlier, was actually the one who said that she was the weak link. And he really did try to get to the root of what happened that night under the bleachers. And so law enforcement convinced Karen to meet them at a house in Fall River where Carol Fletcher's sister was saying. And we mentioned Carol at the top that she had testified. And we'll talk more about her later, but she was also a sex worker who was working for Carl. And when Karen came to the door and saw police officers, she broke down and she said that she was upset and she called Carl the devil. She said, Satan knows who I'm talking to. And as a note, Karen was not the only person who said that Carl was involved in Satanism. Now we've mentioned Robin earlier with Carl saying that there was Satanism. Now Karen is talking about Satanism and Carl. And there were also other women who would recount that Carl would take them to the Freetown State Forest where they would worship Satan. So from this, right, you have a series of sex workers and pimps and authorities start to begin to wonder if they're keeping the sex workers that are working for them or getting protection from them in line by threatening them with these satanic beliefs. 
So to me, that's very interesting because here they are, they're treating them like victims, right? Like they don't often do that. So it's an interesting kind of like shift. But Alvin Silva said it wasn't an organized satanic cult. It was a self-styled creation by Carl Drew. Some reported that Carl would call himself the son of Satan. Interesting name. Mm Mm-hmm. So on February 8th, 1980, almost four months after Doreen's murder, Karen went with law enforcement and directed them to an area in the forest where she had been with Carl. During this trip, it was very difficult to get any information out of Karen. She was crying. She was speaking incoherently. She said that she feared for her own life and the life of her son, because once Carl knew he was going to kill her, which really, really sad. With Karen in the car, law enforcement searched for things like altars or, you know, something that could prove this. And from what I understand, they didn't really find much. So Karen asked the police officers that she was with, including Detective Silva, if she could go to St. Mary's Church to talk to a priest. During the ride, Silva then checked in with the chief of police so that Karen could be placed in protective custody. And the chief actually approved it. So she was fearing for her life. She shared it with them. And it seems like he actually wanted to help her at this moment, which was interesting. And I didn't see it happen anywhere else. Yeah. However, Karen was like, no, 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 no. I do not want to be in protective custody. I just want to go talk to the priest. And so the police officers dropped her off at the church and they watched her for a moment and they saw the priest come out and greet her before they drove away. After this moment, though, unfortunately, Karen was never seen alive again. And it makes me wonder if the whole discussion about being placed in protective custody actually happened or not. I agree. So let's talk a little bit more about her disappearance. So that's the last time she was seen alive. The following day, her grandmother got in touch with the police department and said, you know, she's missing. Law enforcement began their investigation, but they were confident that if she's missing, she's likely already dead. Later, Detective Silva would talk about how he often thinks about her death and that he didn't really think anything was going to happen to her. But that's interesting because he kind of contradicts himself. Yeah, I'm like, that's bullshit because you literally were trying to get her protective custody. So why would you have done that if you thought that she was going to be fine? Mm-hmm. And that's all like in interviews of him talking. So it's not like someone said that he said this. Yeah, it's him. So in April of 1980, Karen's body was found and it was in the forest. Most of her remains were not actually found. It was her skull that was found. And her skull, like the damage to it was super similar to what happened to Doreen's as well. And to this day, I can't find anywhere where they found more of her remains. I don't think anything else was ever found. That's wild to me. But I mean, I guess it is in a forest. So like animals and weather and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but she disappeared in February and she wasn't found until April. So like, yeah, especially in a forest, there's so much going on for, you know, a couple months. Well, especially like Massachusetts forest. There was likely snow. And when the snow melted. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about her investigation. They did, of course, some interviews, one being with Kevin Jones, and he was one of Karen's friends. He said that he was pretty upset with her when she said that she was a sex worker. And he also seems like he was a little protective. He's like, what are you doing with Carl? Yeah. And she had confided in him that she was in fear of her life and that someone was going to kill her. And she then mentioned Carl and said that she had just seen and heard too much. So his concern was valid there. Yeah. Another person they interviewed was Elaine Gibb. And she said that Karen mentioned that Carl and Robin both threatened JJ, which was Karen's son, if she ever tried to leave, which is horrific. Yeah. She also tried to urge Karen to 
you know, leave and not let these people own her and said, you know, you should go tell someone what you've seen. You should tell everyone what you've seen so that they don't have as much power over you anymore. And unfortunately, she wasn't able to ever do that. Yeah. So another person who they had an interview with was Joe Alves. So he had said that he was JJ's father and Alves gave a detailed account of what Karen had told him in relation to Doreen's murder. So he said that Karen had told him where Doreen's body had been left. So she was right about that. And he also said that she had known what had been done to her. And she had said that it was Carl who had done it. Alves also said that Karen was crying and that she started carrying holy water in her pocket. And that she said they tied the girl up behind the bleachers and smashed her head in with a rock. And Carl laughed about it. Disgusting. It is disgusting. It's so correct is what's concerning, right? Like it very much seems like she's present at this crime scene because she wouldn't have known those details. I don't know at this point how much crime scene details have been shared in the media where Alves could have, you know, subconsciously heard or been told. But anytime we're talking about a law enforcement interview where you know specific case details, normally in a true crime case, you're like, ah, that's bizarre. You wouldn't know this. Yeah. And we'll talk later why in this one, that's not so indicative of truth. So she wanted him to see this body, right? Like she was telling him about it. And Joe didn't want to go see a dead body, which I feel like is relatively reasonable. Also, like she was mixed up in something and him having seen the body would also mix him up in it, too. And when he asked her why she didn't go to the police, Karen said it was because she was scared. Additionally, Karen told Alves about a time that Carl had taken her to a Best Western hotel and that he had tied her up and dripped blood on her while walking around saying things in a language that she wasn't familiar with. And that all around the room, there were crosses hung from the ceiling upside down. Seems like a lot to do in a Best Western. It seems like a bad vibe in a Best Western. So there's also Sunny Sparta, and we'll talk about her a few times throughout the story, but she lived in Harbor Terrace, which was a housing project in the area, and she had a criminal history and was friends with Carl, Robin, and Karen. And when law enforcement was interviewing Sunny, Robin happened to call her, and Sunny let them listen in, and they heard Robin admit that she was involved in the murders. Dumb criminal. So let's talk about another woman named Carol Fletcher. And before we continue on about Robin, who, you know, made that call, we want to discuss one of the other people who was involved with the murders. And Carol was the driver of the vehicle the night of Karen's murder. And this comes from Robin's testimony. Yes. After she told her story, she was never cross-examined. And Interesting note, the rental car that she claims, you know, was driven that night was checked for blood and no blood was ever found. And the detective later on was asked, like, interesting, like, you think that they did it, but like, there's no blood in the car and you've never found any evidence of it. His rebuttal to that was perhaps they used another car and then went back for that one later after they cleaned up. So, like, my initial thought is, like, for at least for Doreen's murder, right? And honestly, for Karen's, like, there's no talk of the body being moved. So initially, I'm like, well, why would Karen's blood be in there? Or why would Doreen's blood be in there? And it's like, no, what was done was so violent. There's simply no way you wouldn't have blood on you that would get on a car. Like, not even one speck. That's far-fetched to think that you could crush someone's skull and smash someone's face and there not be blood on you that would get on your vehicle. Just doesn't really make sense. Well, and especially for Karen's, because we'll talk about the testimony later, they talk about how they essentially beheaded her. When you behead someone, there's going to be a lot of blood. You're going to get it on you. There's no way that you can't just like not have blood on you and casually get back into a car and drive away with no evidence. 
Mm -hmm. So that's what was said in the testimony, right? So remember how at the beginning we talked about Paul was like, I need to re-interview these witnesses. I want to know what really happened. So when he re-interviewed Carol, she was at a shelter in Baltimore and it happened on May 23rd of 2003. So in my head, I'm like, 2000s aren't that long ago, but like, it's been a while. She was unfortunately just a fragile, nervous wreck and she was on a bunch of medications. Carol said that Robin had told her stories about Carl and what he would do. After they talked to her for a while, they're like, it was a long time. She finally broke down and said that her testimony was absolutely false, all made up. So the story that she ends up telling Paul is this. On February 8th of 1980, while she was driving around, it was about 7.30, 8 o'clock p.m., she picked up Karen and the two of them drove around and they were just chatting. After they had stopped for cigarettes and beer, Karen told Carol that she had been forced to watch Doreen's murder, but she wouldn't tell Carol who else was at the scene. So she's like describing this horrible thing, but wouldn't say who else was with her at that time. Karen told Carol, quote, if anything happens to me, please don't let nothing happen to JJ. And as a reminder, JJ was her son. Mm, heartbreaking. Yeah, it makes her really sad, this poor little boy. So after this conversation, a green duster pulled up and asked how much. Karen replied and then got into the guy's car and they left. After Karen left, Carol rode around for a little bit longer and then she started heading towards Harbor Terrace. She thought that Karen would go there to look for Robin. So she's like, I need to go meet up with everyone. Mm -hmm. Karen and Robin, though, when she pulled up, were outside arguing and she just sat in her car from what it sounds like. Then she saw that Robin coerced Karen onto the roof of Harbor Terrace. Carl was not present at this time. What she did notice, though, is that Robin was also pulling Karen's hair out. And Carol's like, I don't know what's going on here. And at this point, she tells Paul that she just left. And she's not sure if that's where Karen died or if she was just injured at that moment. But she left. She didn't want any part in what was happening. Yeah. Yeah. Which breaks my heart, like as a friend of Karen, of course, you're never going to say like, it's your fault that happened. But it's just interesting that that's what went through her mind is to leave. Fear, right? Like, it's very clear who the people are who she's dealing with. I don't know. Like, I would like to think that I would be like, hey, stop that. But if I was like way younger and by myself, like, I don't know if I would be able to do anything, especially against someone who's vicious like this. Yeah, I see it and I don't at the same time. But it's also it's hard to be an onlooker and be like, I would have done this in this situation because it's some rough people <laughs> that they're all around. And there's rumors of who killed who. And it's hard to say, but it is really sad that she left at that point. Agreed. So after his interviews, Paul believed that Robin actually was the mastermind and that she just outsmarted everyone in the justice system. Interesting. So let's begin our discussion of Robin Murphy. Now, just as a recap, after listening in on a call between Robin and Sonny, law enforcement heard that Robin had admitted to details of the crime. So Robin was brought in and she was then put into protective custody. She ended up getting offered a deal in exchange for her cooperation and testimony against Carl. Now, this is where we really actually start to hear specifics of the case, right? Because up until now, we're hearing about crime scenes, but not about things that have happened. Like, we don't know what happened, right? So, per Robin, Carl forced many women in the area to worship Satan, and he used it as a mechanism to control their money. Carl forced Robin into a satanic cult, and 
And she also said that Carl had seances with skulls and candles in the middle of the floor and that he would speak in tongues. So this is a little bit telephone. But according to Robin, Karen told her that Carl wanted to make an offering to Satan and that he worshipped the devil. Carl would kill someone if he didn't listen to them. That Carl killed Doreen and forced Karen to participate. And that Karen picked up a rock and bashed Doreen's head in with it. Robin also said that she knew that Karen had been killed within a couple hours of being dropped off at the church because Carl didn't want Karen to talk about Doreen's murder. She also said that that evening, Robin and Karen were on the street when Carl pulled up in a car and said, get in. And she also said there were a bunch of other people in that car like Carol Fletcher, Willie Smith, and then someone named Carl Davis, who, if we mention him again, we're going to say Davis because that's confusing. Too many Carls. And so the group drove to a wooded area. And per Robin, Carl ordered her to pull Karen from the car. And then Robin complied. She then punched her and ripped her hair out and threw it on the ground, which just like the sheer force that you would need to do that is pretty intense. And like, even in a situation where you feel like you have to do a terrible thing in order to not be killed, would continues to happen in what is in this story is so depraved that like it simply couldn't be that you were forced in my opinion but so they then continued to beat karen so per robin carl ordered her to cut karen's throat and again she complied then robin said that carl removed karen's head from her body and like they talk about in various instances of like the idea that they were playing soccer with her head it's horrific it's horrific. It also could not have happened if they were in Carol's car because there would be blood. Yes. Even more. I mean, we're already pretty horrific, right? But after her head was removed, Robin says that Carl ordered her to perform oral sex on Karen and that she complied. She stated very clearly that it was a ritualistic killing. And at the end, they burned the body. And to me, that the end, they burn the body feels very naive. And I say that because at the time that she's saying all this, the only thing that has been or ever will be found is Karen's head. And bones do not burn. Right. So do you see what I'm saying? Like, it feels like she's trying to give a reason for why the rest of the body wasn't found. Yeah. And I do want to say, too, this story of what happened to Karen in the woods came out first, clearly, because the other one came out in the 2000s, of where Carol's like, actually, this is what I saw. Mm-hmm. So, yes, this is very much what they are hearing in the 80s. And this is the crux of the trial. This is what the testimony is about. She sticks to this, like, truly horrific story. And I think part of what makes it believable, in addition to satanic panic, is that she implicates herself, right? Like she's saying she did these terrible things. And in my brain, all I can think is, how bad is what you actually did if this is what you're saying you did? Right. And what I find interesting, too, is like the hair pulling part, right? So that happened in Mm -hmm. Robin's story to the courts. But then Carol claims to have seen that in another location. So I feel like the ones that overlap. Yes, probably did happen right and that when she coerced her up to the roof there might have been a knife she couldn't really see so it's like did she slit her throat there then did that actually happen there or was it in the woods what actually happened yeah so despite these terrible admissions of guilt she said that she didn't have anything to do with doreen's murder and so interesting right like we said it earlier but we'll say it again no one was ever convicted there was never a trial to hold anyone responsible for doreen's murder it's sad like her poor family 
And that's so heartbreaking. Like her poor family, like it's just so fucking sad because this was all handled in such a shitty way. Yeah. That like they probably could have figured it out if they weren't so busy writing a story and then trying to get that backed up. They could have actually gotten justice for these women. Right. Like the people that did make it behind bars for these killings, they're not great people. Like they've done things that they shouldn't have and they they do deserve to go to trial for the things that they did do. We're not saying that they're like totally innocent in every sense, but I don't think they're guilty for what's being said. Exactly. So during the investigation, they did use teams of dogs to find exactly where it happened. And they believe that she was dragged over two miles in the area. It's interesting. Like, did they move her body via the car and bring her to the forest? Was she killed there? See, again, to me, that just makes me think the thawing of snow and the moving of her remains just kind of happened naturally. That could be it. Yeah. Because like, from what I understand, many moons ago, we talked about cadaver dogs in our crime fighting critters episode. But we talked about how like there's search and rescue dogs and there are cadaver dogs and they're two separate trainings for these. Yes. And I'm not aware of training that differentiates between was this body moved by another person or was this body moved by nature? Yeah. We can't really tell. Right. And it would make sense to me if Karen was murdered in winter in a place that's very cold as the spring thaw comes, it would make sense that her body would move, especially because she was found months later. So interesting. Right. So during their investigation, they did find parts of her hair and some of her teeth. And they only really found the upper portion of her teeth and the rest of her skull. So realistically, not not much was left. I wonder when they saw the hair, whether it had skin on it. Right. Because if she was ripping out clumps of hair, I would imagine it would pull skin. Yeah. And that would corroborate what she said. I never heard about that. So I'm assuming it's not there. But like when I hear hair, that's what I think of. Right. Right. So going into Robin's background, there's a lot more known about her now versus when the trial happened. So we kind of put most of it together just to let you know what she was doing. So allegedly, she was trying to be a pimp in the area, kind of like Carl. But some people say, no, that's not quite what she was up to. She was only 17, though, at the time of all of this. So thinking about all like the horrific things, putting that picture in your head that she was 17. That a lot of people say that she wanted control of the street and that she was very violent. And some people even described her as vicious. And one of the detectives, which I thought was an interesting quote, said, quote, Robin could eat a pizza and kill you right after that. I did see one instance where they were talking about Robin recounting the murder to them. And she was like, I killed her. Then I went and ate some chicken and smoked a joint. I was like, that's a very specific order of events. Right. Yes. So Carl said that from the beginning, him and Robin, from the first moment that they talked, did not really get along. They worked together, but they also hated each other. So information on Robin's background is from a range of sources, including an interview in the documentary where she agreed to have her voice recorded. But then later in another interview, she had a video recording done as well. She had a very rough upbringing, and there was a lot of sexual assault allegations. She grew up quickly, with violence being a part of her life, her entire life, really. Her mother was never around, and she was never really in the picture, and her father didn't really care about her. And from what one of her friends had said, he pretty much just rejected her altogether. 
So remember how we brought up Andy Maltese? Well, him and Robin had a very disgusting, awful, terrible relationship pretty early on. And Robin mentioned how when she was just 11 years old that she met Maltese and that he had molested and raped her in the Freetown State Forest. When Robin's friend Catherine Hindle was interviewed, she said that Robin began finding other victims for Maltese, probably so that she didn't have to be the one that would have to have any sexual relationship with him. And that makes my heart really sad that she was even put into that situation altogether at 11. At any time, really, but 11. Uh, Yeah, I mean, like 11 years, like any time, but like she was 17 when she went to prison. Right. So starting at 11, from what I understood, I never saw that 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 relationship stopped until she occupied him otherwise. Yes. So Catherine was one of the friends, unfortunately. And Robin told her that Maltese was safe and it was okay to get a ride from him. And he ended up raping her and he took her to that same forest. And interestingly, he tied her hands behind a pine tree. He then raped her and sexually abused her in a manner that was horrifically similar to the way that Doreen was sexually assaulted. Yeah. Seeing some patterns here, tying her up, raping her, sexually assaulting with something else. Yeah. He told her that if she said anything, her parents and sister would be dead. And when she's interviewed in the documentary, it is heartbreaking because she says it's the first time she's openly talking about it. You just you see her her face break and it made me like want to cry. It was very, very sad listening to her interview. Well, especially like from a friend, not him, but like the fact that Robin put her in that situation, knowing what was going to happen. So she did try to go to police. So she's very brave in that sense that she's like, this is wrong. Yeah. But they wouldn't take her statement because she was only 12. Get fucked. Like, clearly the police there are doing a terrible job of protecting that community. Yeah. So this asshole, too, also bought her two puppies after he raped her. And that's like pretty common where adults will give a child a gift, you know, after. Yeah, like they'll groom them. Mm hmm. And then, though, this fuck killed one of them in front of her. And he said that this would be your father as he did it, as he killed the puppy. That's disgusting. And the 12-year-old having all of this happen to them. Like, just this poor woman. It's a lot. I mean, it's a lot for any age. Like, at any age, this is terrible. Yeah. But if this is... A little girl. I would hope that this was her... Like, I would not hope, but like, presumably this is her first sexual interaction. And to be filled with this much horror, it's very sad and like Maltese is clearly just a fucking piece of shit right right so she said that this experience has traumatized her for the rest of her life also during an interview with the filmmakers Robin said that Maltese used to keep a rifle in his car and on one occasion he shot at her feet with it and when she understandably freaked out he was like I'm just kidding just a casual joke casual shooting at your feet joke with a fucking rifle Yes. And she also says that she did tell police and they just didn't care. So after she told her story, she paused for a moment and said, why didn't he ever kill me? That's so weird. I mean, I think it's because by the time he escalated to that level of violence, I don't know whether he was sexually assaulting her anymore. Yeah. And what we're saying here, too, and I already kind of related it, is like the way that he treated Catherine is super similar to what happened in these murders. So we're starting to go, huh? 
Mm-hmm. You know, why why was he ruled out so early Yeah, when he's doing the same stuff to these people? And then, you know, when they bring this up to Robin, I'm kind of skipping ahead a little, but they did say, hey, we have a theory. We're going to talk more about the theory in a bit. And that's when she replied, why didn't he ever kill me? That's so weird. Yeah. So getting back to Robin's background, she started taking care of the house when she was just 12. Like She was the one who cooked dinner and she had three brothers and their names were Bobby, Mark and Kelly. But Bobby was the oldest and he was four years older than Robin. And one of Robin's childhood friends said that Bobby had raped Robin and that Robin told her that she didn't want to get pregnant because if she got pregnant, her mother wouldn't love her anymore. Which makes this next part even more sad is that Robin then did get pregnant at 16 by one of her brother's lovers. And she didn't give a lot of detail when she talked about the child because she wanted to respect their privacy. And Catherine, that we just talked about a moment ago, said that when Robin told her about this, that she had said that she was raped. So Robin's mother ended up taking the baby, which when I say it makes me mad, I mean this on a visceral level. What happened to Robin should never have happened to her. It doesn't get rid of all the disgusting things she did and who she became. And the fact that she was 11 and started being molested, like one of the ways in which he was with her was like driving her to school, right? So like he was in her life enough. And you're talking about Maltese at this point. Yes. The idea that Robin's mother, who was barely present for her child, and especially barely present enough to know that she's been sexually assaulted by at least three different men, is so infuriating. So filmmakers from the documentary found a police report from Robin when she was 17, where she said that starting when she was 11, Maltese would rape her when taking her to and from school. And the director of the documentary asked Thomas Joaquim, one of the detectives that she had made that report to, if they had pursued Maltese for any sexual allegations, prepared to be mad. And Joaquim replied, no, we were at the time. We were just interested in homicides. Get fucked. That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. And like watching him say those words, the burning in my eyes, just like you are telling the world that you just didn't give a fuck. Well, and I think that speaks volumes to the evolution of sexual assault as a crime, because it used to not be considered a violent crime. It was more of like a property related crime. And the way that they were handled and the way that they were sentenced and things like that didn't match the fact that you are traumatizing and hurting someone and changing them for the rest of their life. And I think that's one of the things that Joaquim didn't understand, but I think that a lot of law enforcement and sometimes men generally do not understand that sexual assault forever changes the person who was assaulted. And you'll hear people be like, oh, but like his entire life is going to be ruined. And it's like, but you literally damaged someone for the rest of their life. Why should you not be held responsible for that? And you can see that kind of bullshit backwards thinking in this, where not only are they like, "Mm, we don't care about sexual assault, right? Because chances are there's no one out here screaming about it on behalf of Robin. And when I say no one, I mean no man. There's no one there screaming about it for her, which there should have been. Like someone should have been her advocates in these moments. But it's just wild to me. If you were the cop that was like, we just care about murders. Like, we don't care about you until you're dead. Yep. Yeah. And then it's an inconvenience because now we have to investigate it. Yes. Can you imagine hearing that? How like maddening would that be if like we know that law enforcement does not always protect people and especially people who are marginalized. 
So it's just so interesting to see someone in such a cavalier way not even feel shame. Yeah. At 17, Robin moved in with Sonny Sparta, again, the Harbor Terrace friend. And it was unclear whether they were in a relationship at that point. Sonny was also friends with Carl and the rest of the people in that scene. And also, detectives hung out at her apartment. Interesting. And they said it was to get information, but they would do things like bring alcohol and pot. And I just want to point out, detectives are not an entry-level police officer. You aren't a detective at 19. I would imagine so. I don't 100% know, but I would imagine there's not a lot of 19-year-old detectives. Yeah. So why were these men hanging out with children, getting them inebriated? Right. And they were like, we were told it was okay because this is the way to get the information. Ew. But what? (laughs) Yeah. Very weird. So during the trial, Robin came in and looked just great, right? She didn't look like she was described. She came in with a Peter Pan collar and a cross around her neck, like the girl next door. And she was given a deal for her testimony. She would only receive second degree murder, which would allow her eligibility for parole. And the way that they spoke, it was like, oh, don't worry, you're going to get out in the next, I forget how many years, but they were like, you'll get out. Yeah. And so she told her story, which didn't really seem to add up once other facts were discovered, mainly the time frame of when the murder took place and like logistics of where everyone would be. Also, every time she told the story, there would always be a little difference and a little change in her story, which typically means you're lying, right? It's hard to keep all your facts straight when you're lying. I would say like, I always thought it was if your story, you told it the same way, like it was rehearsed. It's one thing if you say it in a different way. It's another if it's like, it was cold, it was snow. It was raining. You know, like factors like that, I feel like, are where I'm like, hmm. Yeah. And because of all these little subtle differences in the story, many believe that is what caused many problems for the prosecution. And that's why she became a key element in the case. It's because it was hard to see, like, where everyone was, the logistics, the details, all of that. So they heavily relied on her. So years later, Robin did get parole and was released. However, I've seen a couple ways that this happened, whether it be a routine traffic stop or a follow up, but she ended up being in some sort of relationship, whether it be a friend or a relationship with a felon. And also she was in the vicinity of drugs. But either way, it was a parole violation and it sent her back behind bars again in 2011. And since 2011, she's been there. And she's been denied parole. However, in 2022, this year, she has been up for it again, which we'll talk about. So as Robin's talking about her history, she does talk a little bit about Karen. Because remember, at one point, they were also in a relationship. Robin said when Karen needed help, she had taken her to the Corrigan Mental Health Unit to try to get her some help. And they kind of wrote her off. They just gave her some medication and sent her on her way. And that she seemed pretty disappointed about not being able to help. Robin told the documentary filmmakers that the night that Karen was murdered, she went to Sonny's. And her intention of being there was to cheat on her. She's kind of sad. So while Robin's telling about like her relationship with Karen and how like she met her and all of that, it all happened. It seemed to happen in Sonny's apartment. She also brings up a story, too, that at one point, Carl and Karen came over together to Sunny's apartment and Robin and Carl got into an argument. And when Carl discusses this interaction, he says that he slapped Robin so hard that she was knocked down. What's really interesting to me is that so Carl has a website and he tells his side of the story on the front of it. And he says that the reason that Robin pinned this on him was because of that slap. So weird. 
Yeah. I mean, he shouldn't be hitting her, but like. No, but like, I'm like, that's the moment where he's like, that's the only thing I did to her. Right. So he's like, I can't think of any other reason other than that slap. And if that's the case, like she ruined my life because she like, I'm not saying hit anybody, but like she was fine. Like she got back up. Yes. And when she did get back up, she went over to chat with Karen. Because remember, Karen and Carl, in this point of time, walked into the apartment together. And when she first met Karen, she was like, she seemed like a sweet person. And she talked a lot about her son. And Karen told Robin about Carl and that he had choked her one night at the Holiday Inn. And that when she woke up, Carl was dripping blood on her forehead. And this kind of matches what Alvis had told law enforcement as well. Yeah. Like their interaction. But it's interesting that like we were at a Best Western earlier and now we're at a Holiday Inn. There's like a specific hotel named, like not just a hotel or a motel. It's like Best Western Holiday Inn. Yes. Yes. So Robin knew that Karen was afraid of Carl and that Carl got Karen involved with drugs. And so I saw that a couple times where they said for the sex workers, what they do is they'd give them drugs or they'd give them some sort of medication Mm -hmm. so that they were at like a constant high. And Robin says that Karen told her that Carl killed Doreen and that she knows because she was there. So just interesting as Robin and Karen start to know each other, like all the things that Karen told Robin. And that according to this story that Robin had given, they then get into a car with Carl and go somewhere, right? Like if you knew all those things, would you get into a car with this person? Right, right. But they were supposedly scared of him too. Mm-hmm. True, 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 true. So eventually, Robin admits that the story of Karen's murder was made up and it was made up with the help of authorities. Like they were helping her create the story. They even took her to the scene when they found Karen's skull. And at the time, the DA had a bunch of unsolved murders and was approaching an election campaign. And so they're like, let's get this done. So that's interesting. Yeah. You know, like an election campaign coming up and they're like, "Mm, I just need to solve some of these things. So Robin said that the last time she saw Karen was when they were leaving her foster son's house and she was heading for Sunny's apartment. So... Also during her interview with filmmakers, weirdly, Robin acts as though she didn't know that Karen knew Maltese. And like that to me is just bizarre for a few reasons. First, the fact that she was in a relationship with Karen and considering this person is a literal monster in her life, I would imagine she would be very aware of any connection between the two. Well, that and she told Karen about her encounters with him at some point. Yes. Well, but also, like, to me, this is like the the cherry on top is that Maltese, Karen and Robin at one point went and talked to a state trooper. And we'll talk about this later on. But like that happened. So she was literally in a room with him in a car with him and her. So there was also a report that had an interview between Robin's mother and her boyfriend and law enforcement. And the report includes details about how Robin told them that Maltese had picked up Doreen at Pigeon's Cafe and then killed her. But because she was so upset, they didn't really want to talk to her about it again. And I find that strange. This is the woman who was apparently like an absent mother. So why would she confide in her this? But Robin's response when she's asked about this by filmmakers is that she's like, maybe that's what I thought happened at the time. And she's basically like, it's been so long, I can't even remember. And I'm like, you'd remember someone's murder. Yeah. I feel like you you remember that. You remember like you remember like, hey, I saw this person pick up this person who was later found dead. For sure. 
So we're going to move on to Carl Drew. <sighs> we're coming back to Robin in a bit. We have more to say about her, but we're going to talk about it when we get to more current things. So at the time of Carl's conviction for Karen's murder, he did not know how to read or write because he did not have any formal education. And we'll get into a mo- why in a moment. But in a recent interview, Carl recalled how shocked he was that he was being accused of Karen's murder because up until when he was arrested, he didn't even know he was being investigated because no one had interviewed him. And in this same interview, Carl said that he was set up for Karen's murder because he didn't have anything to do with it. And in interviews, he does not seem like the violent and scary person that people describe him as. He's actually like kind of pleasant seeming. Yeah. Which doesn't mean that you're a pleasant person. We're, we're giving it to you like... Here's what they said. Here's what they said later. But when we were reading this, a lot of what we saw was like terrible, 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 terrible. No, 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 no. And so you get this picture in your head of like a really like rough person who is willing to hurt people to get what they want. At least for me, that's how I felt. So it was strange to be like, hmm, this is a very different view. And in his interview, like he did have some phrasing that he shouldn't have had. But like, yeah, you know, oh overall did not this person that like what we expected him to be right yeah and again like I, I said it before the people behind bars there are reasons that they should be behind bars yeah but they they didn't get their fair and just trial for what they should be behind bars for yeah so let's talk about carl's background carl is originally from new hampshire and he grew up with an abusive father who was also an alcoholic His father would beat Carl until he would pass out. On occasion, he would hang him with a rope into a well. What the fuck? I know. These poor, like, children. Just, ugh. Yeah. So when Carl was 14, he knocked his father out during one of the beatings and left home. He was like, enough is enough. Honestly, fair. So 14, though. He left home at 14. Can you imagine? Just a kid. Just, yeah, a baby. So people would call him Satan and said that, quote, Satan controls the street. Because he was notoriously cruel and violent, and he was just like a feared pimp is the way that people described him. So one of the victim's friends, her name's Trish, she said that he had a reputation for drugging women. So I did mention that a little bit, but like to keep them under his control, he would often just have them high, right? Yeah. Carl said that he charged each woman $200 a week for quote unquote protection, but It seems like he was kind of protecting them from himself. Like if they were under him, then he wouldn't like threaten them as much. Carl was convicted for holding up a convenience store in New Bedford and got a sentence of six years. And that's kind of why he stayed in the Fall River area is because when he was released on parole, he couldn't leave. And so back to, you know, these murders, Carl was only 26 when he was arrested. He was told that he was being brought in for a parole violation. And that his whereabouts were unknown, which is interesting. That's why he was so confused. So investigators say that he always maintained his cool. And like, for example, if he was stoned, they couldn't tell. Like he was just a hard person to read. Yeah. Carl Drew says that the night that Doreen was killed, he was actually at a stepmother's wedding and that there's photos of him being there. And he does describe it, too. So according to Carl's post-conviction attorney, Carl had a, quote, grossly inexperienced attorney defending him. And his name was John Burkus. And he was the person assigned to Carl for the murder trial. And just an interesting note, Carl was Burkus's first and last murder case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So after his conviction, Carl recalls thinking that things would be all right because he was totally innocent. So in interviews later on, so after all of this, Carl talks about how during all of it, he was like, it's okay, I'm going to be all right because I didn't do anything wrong. And then slowly he came to the realization like, oh, wait, my attorney's not actually doing a lot. Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah. Well, like, what do you even do? Especially if you don't have the means to hire your own attorney. Exactly. So like he was watching it. And at first, like he was cool. He was fine. And then he's like, towards the end of it, I was like, oh, my gosh, they're pinning this on me. I didn't do it. Mm -hmm. Getting back to Carl's arrest, he was arrested, right, for a parole violation. And it was over two weeks later that he found out that he was actually being investigated in relation to Doreen and Karen's murders. Originally, when he was charged for the murders, he was charged for both. But ultimately, the prosecution decided to just take one of the cases to trial, and that's Karen Marsden. And no one was ever tried for Doreen's murder, which, again, like we mentioned earlier in the beginning, William Smith was a part of this. And we'll talk about him here and there. But he didn't get convicted of anything that we were aware of. Like, it seemed as though the case for Doreen was dropped. And so there was no forensic evidence against Carl. And the prosecution offered up a piece of what we call alleged forensic evidence because we... And a lot of people speculated on whether it actually is this, right? Because it was so just terribly investigated. Leah Johnson, Carl's girlfriend, testified that she went to police because she thought that Carl had given her a ring that had once belonged to Karen. Leah would later testify that she had received that ring from Carl day after Karen's death. And during the trial, Karen's mother identified the ring as being Karen's. But there wasn't ever any photos of Karen wearing the ring. And there wasn't anything where they showed like, here's the work that we did to prove this was hers. Other than a grief stricken mother who's been told a horrific story saying this is the guy that did it. Yeah. Right. Like if you think that somebody did this to your kid, it's very reasonable that you would be like this ring that looks even remotely similar is that ring. You know, like, I don't think that her mother was like, I'm going to full out lie, but it would be hard for me to be impartial and make the decision on whether it actually was the ring in that moment. Yeah. Well, especially if authorities are like, so-and-so saw him do this. So-and-so was here. He did this and this, of course. Well, and there's also accounts where there's some versions of the story of that night where Carl demands that Karen give him the ring and that when he doesn't, he cuts off her finger. And so it's it's tied to the gore and the horror of what happened that night. So when I feel like it's mixed up that much, it's even more, right? Because they have a salacious detail with it. Yeah. Leah also said that Carl had once told her about a dream where there had been a satanic ritual murder. We'll hear a lot about these weird dreams in general. More than you would think would happen. Yeah. So now we're going to like go through time. When Paul began interviewing people again, one of the first people that he talked to was Leah. When Chris and Paul found Leah, she was actually in prison for drug related charges. And they met her when she was released. And they actually came that day and offered her a ride and they recorded their interview with her. When they asked her if Carl told her that the ring he gave her was Karen's ring, she said he didn't tell her that. She admitted that the whole story was made up and that her testimony hadn't really been voluntary and that she had been told that she would be sent to prison if she didn't testify against Carl. Because remember, a lot of the people who testified in this were part of the scene where they were engaged in illegal activities, right? So threatening them was incredibly easy because they were known criminals. And so 
everyone around them had a motive to lie because they were trying to save themselves. She was basically told, it's you or Carl. And she said they brought her to see the girl's head that he had smashed in. After she tells Paul and Chris this, she signed an affidavit and she recants her testimony while she's recorded for this. Because, I mean, can you imagine like holding on to that? Like, I lied because I was scared. Yeah. And now I've taken your entire life. Like, that would be a heavy burden. But I could see like in that moment panicking, especially because we're going to get into it in a moment. But it happened over and over and over and over and over. Yeah. And her interview, when you listen to it, it sounds sincere. You can't see her. It's obviously just an audio recording. But I mean, she talks about, yeah, this is what happened and why I did what I did. And it's sad that they were put in that situation. Yeah. So let's talk about something that happened kind of recent. So while they were making the Fall River documentary, a man had contacted Carl at one point. They don't say the the actual date, saying that he had some information about the murder of Karen Marsden. For ease of discussion, we're just going to call him Man because he never gives his identity. Carl knew Man's mother and Man was trying to figure out who his father was. He reached out to Carl on Facebook because Man lived at Harbor Terrace on the top row, two entryways down from Sunny. And just as a little bit of background on him, he had witnessed a lot of fights growing up, and he did get in trouble a lot for acting up in school. When Man was five or six, he remembers that he told his mom that he saw people killing a girl and that they were on the roof. And he can't quite remember everything, but he said there were three people for sure, and he could for sure make out that Robin, Sonny, and Carl Davis was there. There was a lot of commotion and screaming. He heard lots of yelling. And he doesn't remember seeing Karen, but he thinks that maybe she was already dead at this point, or maybe they had already killed her. He does remember seeing that Carl was holding back a woman. And he believes that what he saw was like the person pulling Robin off of Karen, maybe. And so how this comes together, Man's mother died in June of 2013. And when she passed, he found his baby book. And in the book was a picture of Carl Drew. And Carl also, in the book, was the first person to come to the hospital to see him. When Man met Carl, he told Carl, you might be my father. So the documentary showed a report from February 15th of 1980, and it's heavily redacted, and it's supposed to be from Mann's mother. It says that an unknown individual told detectives that she had information about the Karen Marsden incident. She wanted to say that she had known Robin for approximately five years and that she feels sure that her, along with Andy Maltese, is responsible for several unreported deaths. Interesting. So there is a part where I think it's supposed to be redacted, but it does say Miss Newman. Hmm. Right. So she also goes on to say that there's no concrete evidence, but she told detectives that she had a vision that she discovered Karen Marsden was dead and that her body could be in a couple different places. It's interesting to me that so many people are telling detectives about weird visions and dreams. I feel like nowadays we'd go, huh, why do you know that information? You know, like and ask more rather than just like taking their word about a weird vision or dream. The next vision that we're going to talk about, no one was like, hmm, a vision. They were like, yeah, do you want to tell us more? Right, right. Tell us more. 
Tell us more. So what else? What else did you see? Oh, really? Okay. It's so weird. It's strange to me. So also uh, in her report, she says that an unknown male helped Robin murder Karen. And she says that Sonny is her son's godparent. Also that Robin committed the crime so that she could get people doubting who did the murders and perhaps Carl's name would be there. Robin and Andy committed all of them, including Doreen, Barbara, who we haven't mentioned yet, and Karen. The report says that it's written for informational purposes in the event that Miss Newman calls again. So it seems like this just didn't go anywhere. I also thought it was really interesting that they spelled a lot wrong in this official report, including feels and the word sure. All right. So there's a, an old report from a woman, unnamed, but we think we know who it is, mm-hmm. that her son is the godson of Sonny. And then this boy who grows up later after his mom dies goes, huh, who's my father? Narrows it down to Carl. Carl's behind bars for a murder that he's like, oh my gosh, I told my mom about a murder at the time that you went away for this murder. But I saw it as being someone else. This is wild. It's getting crazier. Yeah. So as Amanda mentioned earlier, in May of 2004, Robin Murphy came up for parole. And when she did, she came before the state parole board and she admitted to them that she had lied. She also denied killing anyone. Even though she had admitted to lying, she was given parole. And then she has more parole hearings. In one of them, she said that she thought that Carl had killed her girlfriend. So she lied because she just wanted to get justice for Karen, which makes it seem like, oh, like I'm loving and it feels contrived. And in each parole hearing, like she shows a little bit more of how manipulative she can be, in my opinion, because the the parole hearings are very frank and very candid. And to me, it, it's interesting to see someone call her out so clearly. But so, again, as we mentioned earlier, she ended up going back to prison for violating her parole. The reason for that was because she was associating with a felon and she had allegedly been present for a drug transaction. So she wasn't charged with anything new. She violated her parole, so she had to go back. She applied for parole again in 2017. In the statement of the case for the parole decision, it says that in June of 1981, Robin recanted her testimony about, you know, the wild story that she said had happened with Karen. And then that in 1982, she recanted her recanting. She applied for parole in 2012 again. She said that she had lied about her involvement with Karen and Barbara's murders so that two dangerous men, Carl and Maltese, were off the streets. So she said that she had maintained her relationship despite it violating her parole because she was trying to help a friend with their addiction. So she was she knew she was breaking the law. She was trying to do a good thing. She's an upstanding citizen. And then she said, like, no, there wasn't a heroin transaction in my car. It couldn't have happened. Right. And her parole was denied. In the decision, it says, based on Miss Murphy's history of repetitive lying, it would be hard for a parole board member or parole officer to believe anything she said concerning her criminal conduct or her parole violations. So then she applies again in 2017 because it's every five years. And so then Robin's like, okay, uh, you know what? Yep, there probably was a heroin transaction in my car. I just didn't realize it at the time. And I know I lied and said that that person wasn't my girlfriend, but they were. I just didn't want to get in trouble. And I understand that I was being evasive and I'm so sorry. And like, again, she's like admitting to this thing later in the fact to try to get away with something. You can generally write letters to the parole board or you can come in support of. There were people who came in support of Robin and there were people who wrote letters on her behalf. 
But there were also people who wrote letters in opposition, including a friend of Barbara Raposa, who we'll talk about in a little bit, a retired Fall River police detective, which I think is Paul Carey, and Karen's brother. Her parole was denied again because they didn't think that she was rehabilitated yet. And then this past March, she had another parole board hearing. And it's pretty common that she wouldn't have heard back from now. Her previous hearings were in March and then decisions were rendered in October or November. In 2003, Michael Cutler filed a motion to get Carl a new trial. The court gave Cutler the opportunity to share that everyone who testified in the original trial had since recanted, right? And they said, nope, we lied on stand. It's thought that most of the people lied because they had been told that they would get arrested for their illegal activity if they didn't say what they were told to say. So Robin Murphy is called to testify. They showed her parole hearing where she said that she had lied, but then she went back to saying, no, he did it. So it's like, which is it? The prosecution argued that the witnesses who were recanting their testimony were not reliable because of their involvement with drugs and crime. However, Cutler argues that the revised testimony matched the evidence. Makes sense. It does. It does make sense. But the judge is like, nah. And they shut the whole thing down and denied the new trial. The judge deemed the new testimony as not credible. There were rumors that the judge had lunch daily with the old prosecutor in the case, though. Mm, yikes. Mm-hmm. So Carl exhausted his appeals. There's really not much that can be done unless new evidence comes forward. So remember, this is the story of three murders. So we're going to discuss the murder of Barbara Raposa now. And we've structured this episode a little differently than we normally do. Normally, we'll talk about all the victims kind of together, and then we'll talk about the case progression. But here, the murders of Doreen and Karen are really intertwined in a way that I don't think is the case with Barbara, which is interesting, too, because Barbara is the second murder. It lays the groundwork for theories that Maltese and possibly Robin were responsible for all three murders. If you've listened to us before that, you know that we generally try to talk about people who were murdered, not just victims, right? Like the who you were before the worst thing that happened to you. And I couldn't find anything about Barbara other than she was a mother and she was a good person. So Barbara Raposa was murdered on November 8th of 1979. But it wasn't until January 26th of 1980 that a man who was walking his beagle noticed his dog licking something unexpected. It was the remains of a young woman. The area where he was was visible from the road, but it was in the woods. And as we mentioned, it's in January, so it's cold and the ground was frozen, as was Barbara's body. And so her hands had been bound with white fishing line and her face had been smashed in, presumably by one of the pieces of either a cement block or a piece of one that was found close to her remains. And remember, this is the same type of way that we know Doreen was killed and Karen, there was damage to her skull that suggested she had a similar death. Right, right. So while investigating Barbara's murder, law enforcement found that when Barbara and Maltese's relationship began, she was just 17 years old and he was 40. Disgusting. Right. Lindsay mentioned that people say that she was a good mom and a good person. Her son was Maltese's son. So they had a son together. When she disappeared on November 8th, she had told friends that she was leaving him and that she was trying to get her life together. Really sad. Yeah. Maltese lived in between where Doreen and Barbara's bodies were found. I don't know if you just hear like criminal minds voices in your head. Yes. The triangulation. Yes. Oh, yeah. I'm seeing a map and I'm taking pushpins automatically. Yes. Yes. As soon as they said where he lived, I was like, oh, I hear Reed telling me. That's him. 
So per Robin, Andy had called Robin to see if she had seen Barbara while she was missing. He then told her that Barbara was laying dead somewhere in the woods. But Robin misunderstood him and replied, no, Barbara likely just left you. Maltese then responded again. And he said, no, she's dead in the woods. In later interviews, Robin talked about how Maltese had told her that he saw Barbara's murder while he was being carried over the scene by angels. Casually. Naturally. Yeah, an angel would go near him. Robin asked law enforcement whether saying she had been in a car with him would get him, quote unquote, picked up. And they confirmed it would. So she said, yeah, she was in the car with Maltese and Barbara. Her history of like getting being fed information and then, you know, like just spouting it out Mm -hmm. to get someone convicted is very strange. Ultimately, his statements were pretty unusual. But without Robin, there wouldn't have actually been a case, you know, no witness. So police even took her to the crime scene to help her remember things. So they're like, oh, here's a bump here. Here's the direction the car came in. Things like that that she should have known. Apparently, Robin also said that he had two paper bags that he had taken into the woods with him. And this will be important in a moment. In the more recent interview with Robin, she says that lying about being there wasn't about vengeance. It was about making sure that he couldn't hurt anyone else. In this scenario, I believe that more. I do. When it's against Maltese, I'm like... I could see being like, what do I need to do to get this guy away? Because like, not only is he doing terrible things, but she's doing terrible things to not be victimized by him. Yeah. The medical examiner said whoever killed Barbara would have been covered in her blood. Maltese lived with his mother at the time. And when law enforcement spoke with her, she said, well, I didn't hear him come in late. And I don't remember him taking a shower when he got home that day. I didn't find any bloody clothes. And Maltese's alibi for that night was that he was with his mother. And not surprisingly, she corroborated his alibi. White fishing line, the same type used to bind both Doreen and Barbara, was found in the back of his car. And then it starts to get very bizarre. You often hear about people inserting themselves into cases, right? To try to get more information. We hear about it so much now that it's like a trope now. Yeah. We hear about it, but this is the 80s. And detectives said that Maltese, quote, wouldn't stay away from the police station. And he would often come with new details he recalled that he thought would help the investigation. And it wasn't just that he was offering information. He was also like checking in more than is even remotely reasonable. On both Barbara and Doreen's cases, they had a sick fucking relationship, but she was the mother of his child. So at the very least, it's reasonable to be like, where is my son's mother? I could see that being a reasonable thing, but the way that he was doing it was bizarre. One time he went to the house of a state trooper named Lloyd Wheaton, and he'd actually gone to school with him. And he wanted to see what we knew. Inappropriate. Gross behavior. Yeah. And then at another point, Maltese went to the state police barracks to see who he could speak to about Barbara's murder. And he met Corporal Paul Fitzgerald for the first time. While he was there, they scheduled another time to meet. When they went to that meeting, Maltese brought Karen and Robin with him. Although Robin didn't know, supposedly, that Karen and Maltese knew one another. Interesting. On January 27th, law enforcement went to Maltese's home to alert him that they had found Barbara's body, and they asked him to come to the station for an interview. He was like, of course. He was very eager to help. So he drove himself to the station for the interview. Over the course of the next couple days, they continued to conduct interviews with him. 
And when they're done, he leaves. He's not arrested. At one point, he's like, I have to go to church. So he goes to church. He comes back after church. When they ask if they can search his home and vehicles, he, of course, says, okay. When they're searching the car, they find the bags that Robin had mentioned. And she confirms that they were the bags she had seen. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Late at night on January 30th, just four days after Barbara's remains were found, Maltese came to the police with a Bible. He told officers that Barbara was now with God. But she had been with the devil. He spoke extensively about God and Satan for approximately two days and did not have an attorney. Reading the court documents, at at one point, his counsel tries to argue that he should have had counsel during these days. And the amount that they had documented him being given his Miranda rights over the course of every time he talked to them, it was like borderline obnoxious. It got to the point where Maltese himself said to one of the law enforcement officers, you've told me this a thousand times, I understand, or something to to that effect. And it was like over and over and over, they were like, you have a right to counsel, my guy. And he was like, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm just helping. Weird. So reports from this included notes on weird letters Maltese had written to Barbara about the devil and how Maltese had tried to save her many times. So now she's paying for her sins. Creepy. When pressed about Barbara's murder, Maltese said how he saw the murder was in a dream or something like a vision where he was hovering by the treetops above the scene and witnessed it happen. So this goes back to like when Robin was saying the angel story. Mm-hmm. When he went on, he said that during the murder, Barbara was screaming, Andy, help me. Andy, forgive me. I don't think that's the thing that she would be thinking about while getting murdered. Maltese maintained that he had never been to the area where the murder had occurred. He even marked on a photograph of the scene where he had been hovering. Law enforcement took him to the scene of the crime. And so when they're talking about taking him and him going, he's talking to, I believe it's the district attorney. And they're talking about whether he should go. And he's like, well, maybe I'll see something that you guys won't see. Like, I'm not saying cops are dumb. I'm just saying that, like, I'm a fresh set of eyes. And like, he's like, what could it hurt? And the district attorney's like, what could it hurt? Like, sure, dumb, dumb. What could it hurt? You're basically confessing right now. Yeah. So weird. And it's it's weird to me, though, that they're just like taking everyone to the crime scenes over and over again. It's a real Velisca situation, you know? It is. It is. So as they did this, the officers that were escorting him heard him say, quote, I think they got me now as they made their way to the scene. Dumbass. <laughs> like, I, I hate him so much that I'm just like, good. But like, dumb. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. After they got there, they heard him say, I know they got me now. Just bizarre. Like, the whole thing is bizarre. Yeah. So he correctly pointed out where Barbara's body had been, even down to exactly where her head was, the shape and size of the rock that had been used to bludgeon her. He also discussed Barbara having been bound. And when he came up to a pile of broken chunks of concrete, he said, quote, I sense a murder weapon in that pile. So we mentioned earlier in the episode that Maltese was arrested on February 7th, but wasn't held for more than a day. And this is the crime that he was arrested for. So he ultimately, he gets arrested later. But originally, they they bring him in right away because they're like, "Mm, something's off about this 40-year-old man and his, like, young girlfriend. And he's bailed out. Yes. Yes. And so I mention that now because when they were considering the other crimes, they were like, no, he was in jail then. But he wasn't. 
he was out when Karen was murdered. So Maltese ended up being convicted of first degree murder for killing Barbara and he was sentenced to life in prison. He later died of a stroke, but he wrote what I could only describe right now as the grossest letter to Robin saying that he'd only been trying to make a woman out of her. So gross. Oh, get fucked. Like, ew, Maltese. I've never been happier of someone's death. So when asked about Maltese, Carl said that he only knew of him. Particularly, he knew what he had been doing to Robin. So he thought Maltese was an asshole. Fair. Yeah. So this has been a really long episode. But to be able to do justice to this kind of bizarre series of events and the range of people where you're like just confused on like, who's lying? Why are they lying? Why are they asking people to lie? Why are they telling them to say this? This is a really intense story to make up. You kind of have to say all of it. When we laid out the information, for me, it seems like a real no-brainer on who did this. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's Malteus. And the second I read what he had done to Robin, I knew I was like, oh, it's him. And the first thing I read was it was a recent article talking about a parole hearing in March of, of 2022. And I saw like what he had done to her. And I was like, oh, he's a monster. Why wouldn't any, why wouldn't everyone just assume that he did everything? Because if you can do this, it's not a stretch of the imagination to think that you are a person who is going to continue to hurt women in horrific ways. Yeah. And I did it kind of opposite because I went in order of the murders first, then everyone's backgrounds, and then all of the suspects and their backgrounds. And then, yeah, getting to him, you're like, he's pretty awful in every capacity. And then especially when Robin's friend brought up the things that happened to her and you're like, isn't that a big like, duh? Yes. And so Amanda and I came into the research in different ways. But do you feel like once you had a good grasp of all of the facts of the case that you still went, it's Maltese? Oh, yeah. Obviously, right? It's like him and perhaps Robin for different reasons. Yes. I think that she personally, I think that she was present because she had been sacrificing other women. Yes. And when I say sacrificing, I don't mean in the satanic kind of way. I mean, she was like, rather you get hurt than me. And in order to do that, sometimes she might need to be present to get that person to trust him. Uh huh. Maybe she didn't know what was going to happen to that extent. But to me, she's still culpable and she's where she belongs. So we've talked about this documentary a lot, the Fall River documentary. James Buddy Day is the director, and he kind of compiled all of the reasons why it's probably Maltese that did it. And it's crazy that it took that, you know, to like bring it to light. He's one of the people, too, that brought up the similarities. So per his theories, he also suggests that Karen was murdered in order to silence her. As you'll recall, Karen had told people that she had been present for Doreen's murder and talked about some horrific details, but she never actually mentioned who was also there and who killed her. Further, there is a report that was given by Karen's grandmother, and her grandmother said that Maltese had threatened Karen before she had been killed. She also said that Maltese had told her that he thought he might be arrested for the murder of Barbara, and if he was, he felt that Karen's safety was in jeopardy. Yikes. Just all around asshole, right? Yeah. So what I find really interesting is that many of the detectives are still holding on that they made the right calls. And then some of the newer faces and reporters are questioning what happened. And they're like, well, I want more on this. Yeah, it doesn't feel difficult to get there. We did our best to really like get a full picture and not just go, oh, okay, one person thinks that it's Maltese. Is it Maltese? 
And even when I have a gut feeling on, like, when we start researching, I never am like, well, that's how we're going to research it. Right. In this, it just feels so simple. Yeah. Why would you think that that insane story that Robin made up was a thing that actually happened? Is it because what does that mean about you as a police officer? Well, and not only that, all the murders happen in a similar fashion. So why would it be you killed her? You killed her. But this other person killed the second person? Doesn't make sense. Why not the same person? Exactly. Exactly. That makes no sense to me. But just to say what what's going on with some of these people right now. Alan Sylvia retired from the police department, but he went on to become a state legislator for the Massachusetts House of Representatives. Woof. Woof. He can't admit he's wrong, but okay. So then Paul Carey unfortunately passed away in 2019. He had actually planned to collaborate with the documentary up until his death. That is very sad. Another interesting detail that I thought was a good thing is Carl is currently trying to get the help of the Innocence Project. And he started trying to get their help in 2020 when COVID hit. So there's kind of like a pause in everything going on. But the documentary did send all of their findings to the Massachusetts Public Innocence Project. And so that's where we're leaving off. And if anything else comes up from any of this, we will be covering it in our True Crime Digest. Absolutely. And also, anytime we have any case where there could even remotely be a reason to check, I always look at NamUs. And I did check to see, like, are there unidentified remains that they found where there's skull injuries or young women? All of these women were very young. Yeah. I didn't see any that seemed like that, like, particular to that geographic area, not that... Maltese couldn't have traveled. But to me, I feel like the first time this happened wasn't Doreen. I think he'd killed before. And I think just because like the level of aggression and the level of pattern, maybe it's because I've watched Criminal Minds too many times. I wonder if he did it accidentally once, you know, like he's doing this pattern of horrible things and accidentally killed one of them Mm. and then wanted to do it again and again and again. That's fair. Well, as always, we want to know what you think about this case. Keep an eye out for our True Crime Digest for updates. Also, our second podiversary is coming up in the beginning of October. So we're going to have another listener episode. So we want to hear the story of the scariest thing that's ever happened to you. And spooky is spooky. Is it ghosts? Is it paranormal? Did someone follow you? Is it something else? What spooky things have happened to you? Also, I mean, like, look, if you've got an interesting story to tell, even if it's not about the scariest thing, we're still intrigued. We still want to know. If not for this episode, maybe for something in the future. Yeah. And with that, have a great weekend. Thanks for creeping with us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our sources, please visit our website, truecreeps.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at truecreepspod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash truecreepspod and on Twitter at truecreeps. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps. 